This is TAS Talks Modular, a podcast where we explore worldwide modular solutions featuring innovative and custom designs. Join us as we talk modular. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of TAS Talks Modular. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And thanks so much for joining us today on another episode of the podcast. I want to make sure that you're getting all of the TAS Energy content you are craving as you're listening along. So make sure that you're subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And make sure you're headed to our website, TAS.com. Again, TAS.com for more information on our solutions and services and more episodes of TAS Talks Modular and other pieces of TAS Energy content. So as has become clear over the last several years, modular construction is becoming a mainstay for various industries. And this growth in the market can be seen down to the numbers. Uh, To reference just one study, uh, according to the Modular Building Institute, from 2014 to 2019, the industry doubled in size to $8 billion. Now, when you add COVID to the mix as well, the need for quick, flexible construction solutions has become even more visible and grown even further. So with more end users desiring a modular project, how should they go about executing one? What are the main steps to consider when concepting a design, a build and the deployment? So on today's episode of the podcast, we're breaking down exactly that by covering what you need to know to perfectly execute a modular project. For insights today, we're joined by Neil Smith, Vice President of International Products for TAS Energy. Neil, great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Daniel. It's nice. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to a chat. Yeah, it's a pleasure getting to chat here and uh, source your insights on something that, like I said, has continued to become more and more relevant and more and more desired by a wide variety of client bases in different industries. Uh, So just before we get more specific on it, do you agree with that kind of growth that I laid out at the beginning? Are you seeing an increase, at least just at TAS Energy, of clients coming to you from a variety of different industries looking for a modular project? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, modular has been around for, for many years. Um, I've been in the business of modular uh, builds for uh, most of my career, actually, but in different parts of the market. So it, it has grown hugely over the past few years, especially, uh, like you said, the covid COVID uh, issues have have highlighted the sort of some of the advantages of the modular build where you're building under a much more old environment. So yes, the market is expanding. It's expanding not only in the data center world, but in other parts of industry too. And now for a little more context on you, Neil, can you give our audience some information on how long you've been working in the modular industry and what sort of work you've been doing in and around modular projects over your career? Sure. How long have you got, Daniel? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's let let's let's give the uh, the elevator pitch version. <laughs> yeah. So, like I said early in my career, um, I uh, was involved in modular build thinking processes. So my initial career was in uh, Scotland, and I worked in the oil and gas industry doing hookup of offshore platforms in the North Sea. So as you can imagine, that sort of location of a plant is a very difficult location to actually build in. So the modular approach was the only way that production platforms could actually be moved into place 
uh, and able to actually produce the oil. So uh, from the 70s, basically, modular build, and, and even earlier than that, modular builds have been uh, used uh, in that marketplace. So I started my career there, and then I moved into modular construction of gas turbine packages, uh, which were power generation um, units that were uh, a modular build for easy install in sites, and those, those were shipped all over the world. Uh, and then recently, more recently with TAS, uh, who I joined in uh, 2012, I've been, again, modular uh, uh, in my approach to the, to the business and working in the modular industry. Mostly recently in the data center world, but we've also done modular packages for power generation, for industrial cooling, for, uh, I would say that's probably the most of it, uh, in places like uh, hospitals and casinos and uh, central uh, cooling plants uh, and also uh, power stations for using the chilling package, a uh, modular chilling package to, to uh, support the output of a gas turbine package. So in that time that you've been working in and around modular projects, what are some of the most common pitfalls that you see clients run into when trying to launch a modular project? So, so the biggest pitfall I think I've seen in the past is that even though there's a general drive to say, let's do this uh, modular, let's get that done, they tend to kick the project off early with a sort of EPC type contractor or a large engineering company and their mindset is not necessarily modular so they start the project off as if it was going to be a stick build type of approach and often halfway down that road they come to realize that hey we haven't really approached the modular yet and we don't really have the experience in-house to do it and they often go down that road of, of trying to do it without really understanding some of the pitfalls that you can fall into with a modular approach. So from, from a modular perspective, uh, the biggest factor, I think, is get the modular experts in the conversation very early on in the project planning phase. Uh, make sure that the actual project is set up to be a modular success, uh, involving that expertise early on. I think that's probably a number one, I would say, in, in, my, uh, in my recommendations on a modular approach. Well, let's go ahead and get into the specifics now. We're going to go ahead and break down several key points of launching a modular project and try to source some of your insights. And feel free to reference any projects you've worked on throughout your career or any specific anecdotes to help uh, you know, back up some of your advice here. But let's go ahead and start with the beginning of a project. How soon into the project construction and development should a modular expert like TAS Energy be brought into the mix? When should an end user or a client, I guess to be more specific, reach out to TAS to uh, begin the modular process and why? When I said early on in my previous comment, I think uh, as soon as the idea of the actual construction of a plant, whatever that plant may be, is being formed as a you know, as an approach from the end user. The end user says, "Okay, I'm going to build a, build a X type of plant. Let's just use a data center for as an example. I need a data center, and it's of this size in this location. So, how do I do go and do that? To do it from a modular perspective, it, at that point in time is the time to involve the modular experts. Even if it's just a early consult, it's about uh, the conversation to say, okay, I want to build this plant. It's in this location. 
tell me what the, the advantage is of, of using the modular approach in this location so that I can move forward successfully. That means let's talk about where the location is. For instance, a project I'm recently working in is an international location that is in a, a plant that is already an operational plant being expanded. It's a very tight area in terms of uh, being able to work in that location. A traditional stick build of that plant would have taken something like 9,000 to 10,000 people on the site at any one time at the peak of the, the construction phase. And to do that in a location that is in a tight location and manage that amount of people to actually do the project becomes a huge burden. And as I'm not going to say impossible, but it's uh, very difficult to manage that amount of people in and out of a site and get a good productive uh, program in place. By involving the uh, modular team early on, they can actually look at the build of the plant. What does it look like? What does the design look like? And how can we break that up into modular packages um, so that it's those packages can actually be built in a controlled environment in a factory setting, whether there's a normal factory setting within that normal factory's uh, control and management of, of quality and schedule, and how can we separate the scope of that plant so that we can do that in a much more controlled fashion? What does that do? It, what, it reduces substantially the amount of manpower required at the site at any one time. It helps you manage the actual quality of the product in a much more managed situation, being in a controlled environment in a factory. And it also helps you build the plan of the project where you're actually building in many different locations in parallel to actually reduce the overall construction type at site, therefore giving you a much more controlled and uh, managed situation over the project schedule. Once a client is in the weeds or you know is beginning to put together a vision for their project, how much difficulty do you find clients have in defining responsibilities around a modular project. Is that a point of contention at all? Yes or no? Why or why not? Yes, it often is. And, and again, it's a part of the reason why the uh, modular uh, experts should be involved in the overall planning and programming of the project early on is to define that division of scopes. No matter what you do from a modular perspective, uh, most projects need an overarching managing partner that actually manages the project from start to beginning and coordinates everything on behalf of the owner of the plant, whoever that owner may be. That company may be a company who's experienced in actually modular, but it may not be. So when I say to have the modular expert involved, it's important when you break down the scope definition of, of who's doing what in the zoo, that it's very clearly defined where the scope limits are within the modular scopes. And by limiting those limits in the modular scope, what is missing that has to be done at site that may not be possible to actually modularize. And that being defined on who takes care of the responsibility and the design of that. So that overall managing contractor is a sort of EPC type contractor that has experience coordinating all of those different activities and making sure that there's no misses in the scope and who would supply it and who's going to install it as the project moves forward. Daniel, no projects are perfect. There's always some misses here and there. But the more you involve those partners at that early phase, phase of the project, 
allows the project to move a lot smoother. Hopefully you don't miss much. So that ties down the budget of the project early and also ties down the schedule of the project early. So that partnership, it's, and it is a partnership that's required for that sort of project, that partnership, if it's, if it's nurtured early in the project phase, the project becomes much, much easier to actually perform moving forward. So then what's your strategy and TAS Energy's general strategy for a proper definition of project scope and project roles? So there's uh, uh, some tools to be used that you can do that. We, we TAS, and, and I've seen this in other companies, we have a very, very comprehensive sort of uh, Excel spreadsheet tool that uh, is already pre-completed uh, in terms of all of the types of activities that are required to build a plant like that. And it's a long, laborious exercise to go through that spreadsheet. And there's, you know, probably five, 600 line items in that spreadsheet, depending on what the makeup of the plant is. And that can be expanded as the plant is a, is a more complicated plant or simpler plant, depending on the number of systems in that plant that are required, that can be expanded to match every system that's actually makes up the plant. So it's a laborious exercise, but you have to go through that exercise defining one, who's going to design, uh, or even earlier in the phase, who's, who, who's responsible for producing the documents for the permits, who's going to get the build permits, who's going to get the licensing for the plant and build the plant, um, who's going to get the approvals of the local authorities for all the different activities, and looking through the sequence of the, of the project lifespan. And that's what the spreadsheet does. It takes you through that sequence of the project lifespan and identifies the player or the partner who will uh, actually perform all those activities from the initial design, from the detailed design, to the actual manufacturing or installation, the testing, the commissioning, and then the startup works and the coordination of everything that's final in terms of as-built and conclusion of all the work. So you go through the phases of the project and detail who's doing what and which part of the project very early on. So, so everyone's scope is understood and people can actually go away and, and actually do the work without any complication coming later and any surprises or gotchas because something's been forgotten on the way there. So when does the actual design process begin and what are the key variables that need to influence the beginning of a modular project design in your opinion? So the design process usually begins when, when any com given company or, or owner of the plant, whatever that plant may be, decides I want a plant or need a plant because I see a business expansion in a specific area or a specific market. And then the planning starts, okay, I need this plant. I need it in this location, whether it may be in Europe or in the US, let's say it's in a state in the US. So then it becomes, okay, I want it in this state. Why in that state? Because that state is the state that provides a central core for me to have that data center by the distribution of all of the support systems. And it's a good state or there's other incentives to build in that state. That's part of the planning. The modular person really doesn't get involved that much at that point in time because that's more of a financial and... Um, let's say, potentially political and long-term planning decision of the actual owner. But once he decides that, that is the, the really the start and the kickoff. It's, okay, I need the plant. I want it to be this size. Now I need someone who I know can actually build a plant like this. Who are the experienced players out there that can actually manage a project like this? 
And then you go into the whole uh, preparation of, okay, I need an engineering company to do the basis of the design so that I can then get an idea of exactly how much this plant will cost. So the early phases of the design work are done. An expert engineering house are usually experts at putting these sorts of documentation together. That gives the basis of design. What that does at that point in time is then you have a basis of design. You actually can go for local approvals in terms of permitting and longer term planning while the engineering company is getting on with trying to to move forward. The the more detailed design and the more uh, detailed planning phase of the project. That is the point in time where really the modular expertise should be getting consulted at least uh, in terms of adding their expertise and knowledge into the overall planning of that project. Let's loop in the project location as well into the conversation. How does the project location end up influencing the design as well as the workflow around deploying the project in general? When I compare locations, there are different factors that people have to consider for locations. If it's in a fairly easily accessible uh, area like Arizona in the U.S., then it's fairly easy to get transportation in and out. Why am I concerned about that? Well, for several reasons. One, you have to transport people to and from the site. Other consideration is that, okay, now I have hundreds or potentially thousands of people in a large project site. Where are they going to live? Where can they be accommodated? Do I have accommodation available in that area? If I don't, what am I going to do? Do I have to build the temporary accommodations? Do I have to arrange other arrangements for transportation? Where is the workforce going to live? You have to consider all of those factors that will potentially affect the progress of the project because in the end, uh, the end user wants to ensure that when he budgets for that project, that the project comes in within the the budgeted uh, budget and also the time schedule that he wanted the project to be producing whatever it needs to produce in in the end. When I look at other locations, Europe, for instance, there's other factors that you have to think about. Obviously, to meet a European requirement, there's a different set of specifications and standards that, that apply to the plant in Europe that would apply in the U.S., U.S. standards are different from European standards, so the actual materials, the design specification of the materials, the build standard of the materials, the safety standards and other things like that all have to be considered to make sure that when the early design phase, that the plant is actually built to the suitable design specifications and standards that are applicable in the location that that plant uh, will end up. That's a factor that uh, I get recent history uh, and my history that uh, was an issue in one of our projects that we were doing that uh, we got some, uh, let's say, a lack of clarity around specifications that uh, caused some, um, let's say, some consternation between different partners in the project. And it did uh, slow things up quite a bit in the engineering design because there was a sort of conflict in design approach that the early team had used that had to be adapted to make sure that it met the local requirements as the project went through the design phase. Very critical uh, on any project is understanding the local requirements and the location. Very critical. Neil, does TAS assist in maneuvering site decisions and site permit acquisition or any of the 
more logistical sides of deciding where to actually deploy your modular project? Or is that something that the client often has to figure out on their own? Uh, I would say it's yes and no. So the client would normally uh, make the decision of where he wants the plant. And that, there's, there's all sorts of reasons why he usually does that. But there's often incentives for him to build a plant in a specific place given by local governments and things like that. So that decision is usually well out with uh, TAS's influence or any modular build company's influence. So after that, though, once they make that decision, then there's a lot of, let's say, input that a modular expert like TAS can actually help with in terms of understanding any restrictions. For instance, uh, again, uh, building a plant in Europe when you're moving equipment around and you're building uh, modular piece boxes or whatever the is inside the boxes, um, there are restrictions um, in terms of what you can move around. Uh, Europe, you know, being a much older part of the world, its build structure is quite different to what most of the US is. And therefore, you can't move as uh, large pieces of equipment around uh, nearly so easily. So uh, you have to understand all of those. And that's where the modular expertise comes in and says, okay, we need to break the modules down possibly into smaller modules because of those uh, um, transportation limitations. And those can be uh, very, very difficult to get around because of the roads in Europe. They've been there for a long time. There's lots of bridges, there's lots of tunnels, there's lots of power systems that may even have to be sort of moved around temporarily for you to be able to move equipment. So that's the kind of expertise that the modular expert can bring to the table at that early stage to make sure that you don't create for yourself a logistical nightmare as the project uh, moves forward. So once it's actually time to deploy the project and take the modular build to the site, what are some ways to ensure the delivery and integration goes smoothly client side? Again, a lot of planning. And, and this really is about planning. Once you've decided, once you're building the modules, you've finalized the design, what the modules are going to look like. You know how they're going to be packed and shipped around. And then it's about coordination between, certainly when it's international. So you're talking about having a coordination between um, the modular build expert, making sure the modules are prepared in the way that they need to be prepared to be transported. And that can be different types of preparation. It can be fully boxed in with wood. It can be wrapped with shrink, shrink wrap, uh, depending on where it's going. If it's going on a ship, then you have to make sure that it, it's potentially as watertight as possible. If it's going to certain places in the world that have very tight restrictions about what type of wood can be used to actually pack things. I remember in my early careers in the, in the power industry, I, I won't say which country, but it was a very protective island in the world and um, the wood that had been used to pack the equipment um, had not been treated as it should have been treated before it went into the country. And the equipment sat in the dock for about six weeks before that uh, potential issue was actually worked out, where the, the wood that was actually used to pack the equipment should have been treated uh, for uh, insects and things. Um, because if it wasn't, then there was a potential issue for insects to get into that island that could be destructive to its local habitats and balance of its nature. And they wouldn't allow the equipment in for about six weeks. It all had to be treated at the port, etc., and all sorts of uh, difficulties that that sort of thing can create. 
as you can imagine, six weeks delay in a piece of equipment not getting to the site can cause all sorts of flow down problems for the end user. So those are the kind of little things that you can get caught up in uh, that can create much, much bigger problems further down the road if you don't understand what you're doing uh, in that sort of areas. Based on conversations I've had with other modular thought leaders, to get a fully functional modular building also takes the teamwork of multidisciplinary teams. Sometimes these are all in-house in the modular construction company, like TAS Energy. Sometimes it is a collaborative effort, but those multidisciplinary teams often include folks that need to execute on power, on HVAC, on plumbing, et cetera, et cetera. So how does TAS approach the team building and workflows of these several teams once on site? What's y'all's approach and strategy and why? So our approach is to try and use the, the companies that we've used in the past where we have history with. Why do we do that? Because it's a learning curve. Um, the modular approach is a learning curve for, for some companies. So for instance, uh, again, a recent project, we actually, in our factory, we do as much of the work that we can uh, ourselves and are using our own labor. But sometimes we have to pull in third party expertise for different types of, of uh, systems that might be included within the module. And you mentioned HVAC and there's also specialized piping, let's say if it's stainless steel piping or fire water systems that need a licensed contractor to actually do that to our licensed electricians that need to come in and actually must be installed by a licensed contractor. So we try and identify those companies that we prefer to use and build that relationship over time to avoid those learning curves on different projects. So we have companies that we work with that we've had sort of, uh, you mentioned team building, you know, working, working in the area in Texas, we are spoiled in Texas. We have a lot of options in terms of, you know, potential partners that we can use for those things. And um, so we have several companies that we do work with, the preferred companies that we've worked with for many years, uh, and try and keep those partnerships as, uh, as uh, let's say, as, as cooperational as possible to avoid any issues moving forward. And we have teams that do that. We don't really do uh, things like team building events because we've got that expertise. But when we do bring on new contractors in that phase, uh, we spend a lot of time actually taking them through everything that we are expecting in TAS, how we operate in TAS, how we operate with other companies and, and the relationship that we're looking for moving forward. It's not just a one contract type relationship. We're looking to bring in partners that we can actually feel like they're a partner, not just a contractor subcontractor relationship and try to look at it long term that can benefit both parties rather than try to use contractors that are just looking to make the most of the bucks, as many bucks as they can out of that one project. All right, Neil, we're almost reaching the end of our podcast today. Uh, I want to take some of the information you've laid out and ground it, I guess, you know, pun intended, <laughs> to a <laughs> project that is more specific and encapsulates a lot of the strategies that you've broke down on the podcast. So I know your team recently deployed a 90 module modular three-story building, which is massive at scale. Can you break down some of the different pieces of strategy that informed how you approached this rollout? And uh, can you take into account some of what we've just broken down today? 
Um, so the specific project uh, that you're talking about, uh, I know very well. I've been heavily involved in that project uh, through the business. And the, all of the strategies almost that I talked about were, were, were used on that project. And when I say that, I mean, I first got involved in this project in the early phases of the project four years ago, when we first started to talk to the the preferred uh, EPC contractor and the client about what they were planning to do on that project. And they involved us as a, as a packager or a modularization company very early on to have that conversation. Now, having said that, I'm not saying that that specific project was easy to move uh, forward and was easy just because we had those uh, early conversations. And typically in projects like this, things change as things move forward. And there was a lot of challenges through the project life when it actually really started to kick off. So when I say started to kick off, uh, I'm referring to actually the project uh, starting the real work and the real design work uh, much further defined. And you're actually now on the clock, as it were. You have a start date and you're targeting an end date. So that particular project grew from 24 modules at the early phases of the project to 90 modules and three stories uh, when the final design was actually completed. So that created all sorts of uh, challenges for the team. Uh, we involved many different engineering partners to, to help us get to that point. We involved experts from different fields that were new partners to us, but we created a team that uh, in the end it became a very successful team moving forward. And we're at the point on this, that particular project where we're deploying the final modules over the next couple of weeks that will be on, on their way to the site. As I said, the, 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 there was a change, a lot of changes in the design of, as the project moved forward and we went from 24 to 90 modules. And that created uh, all sorts of um, challenges within our own business, but also um, dealing with what that meant at site and, and what it meant to the installation contractor, what it meant to now the shipping requirements. We were actually shipping nine modules in 10 of, instead of 24. And we had to build 90 modules instead of 24, which meant that we're actually more than tripling the amount of modules we had originally envisaged for this. So what did that mean? It meant that we had to now look at what our overall capacity requirements would be to build those 90 modules. And as is normal in a project like this, so when I say normal, it's it's usual that the customer, yes, I'm asking you to build 90 modules now instead of 24. No, by the way, uh, I need them in the same time frame as I was looking for the 24. So how are you going to do that? So there was a lot of conversation and discussion and planning with all of the parties, including the main uh, coordinating partner, the installation company, the transportation companies, the logistics companies, um, the, the quality management people, the legislative uh, teams to make sure that the overall design met all of the local requirements because this specific project is not in the US. So that added that other complexity that I talked about earlier with different codes and different standards that uh, uh, we had to also bring in some other expertise from that local area to help make sure that as we were starting the design, that we kicked the design off uh, with the right sort of uh, approach from an overall local authority um, perspective to make sure that the project, when it did actually arrive in, in country, 
that there was no major issues around how the project was built and to make sure that it met the local standards. So there was an awful lot of time and effort put into that overall coordination to ensure that the product, that as it goes out the door here, uh, will not be rejected when it gets to Ireland for some reason. And that involved also uh, quite interesting things, actually, because of the COVID issue recently has meant that customers, engineers and inspectors have not been able to travel to the factory to look at things and inspect things before we shipped. So they have a local person here, but we've also had numerous video conferences and video walkdowns of the modules to uh, show and actually inspect the modules on a sort of, um, if you will, on the internet. Um, so that people from that location can actually see what the modules are and actually do a visual inspection from remote. So that was a brand new challenge for all of us, uh, all brought on by the local, you know, the, the COVID restrictions that we've all had to work under over the past six months or so. All right, Neil Smith, that more or less wraps up our conversation for today. Any final words of advice to leave our audience with if they are planning on launching their own modular project? First, I, I think I'd say a couple of things. One, if you're planning on launching a modular project, why are you planning on it? Why do you want it to be modular? What's your thinking about why you've decided it needs to be modular? And because you've decided that it needs to be modular, what is, what, what is the end you, what, Mr. Customer, what do you think you're going to achieve by doing it modular? Because I would like to understand where your mindset is before we can actually before we actually move forward from a modular approach so that I can understand what your thinking is and then adapt your thinking into my modular design approach. That sort of partnership thinking process at the early stages of the project is critical to moving forward. Most customers or a lot of customers in the past have gone to an open bid process. I want modular this. They provide you with some drawings and you try and understand what they're trying to do, provide a modular uh, um, solution to them. And they've done this with three or four different modular suppliers without any real uh, contact between yourselves or any real discussion, very much on a open sort of bid type process where there's limited conversation because of their internal rules and controls, come to the point that they, you put the proposal together, you send it to them, and they choose the cheapest proposal with the best schedule without any real conversation between the parties. Because that has been historically the approach that a lot of companies have used as they, you know, as they choose their suppliers for pieces of equipment uh, building moving forward. From my perspective, and I think from a task perspective, those days have really gone. And to be successful for major projects like this, that partnership early on in deciding how you would move forward and how best to meet the customer's needs using that sort of partnership approach is by far the most successful approach uh, on any project moving forward. Uh, and I've had both approaches in my, my past, and by far that that approach that is a teamwork type approach early on is always more successful than the standard approach where you're just another bidder in a process and they've chosen the cheapest and fastest. And usually what that means is that when you get into that point, they've awarded the contract to a 
cheaper and faster builder. Once they actually get deeper into the project and some of the questions that should have been asked early on but never were because there is no relationship there. Discovery comes up, things change, price changes, schedule changes, and projects are not able to deliver. Um, the end user's not able to deliver what he initially wanted to have. And the contractor suffers, the end user suffers, the construction company suffers, everybody suffers. Uh, purely because you didn't spend the time and talk about it and plan it early on in the project. All right, Neil Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Again, Neil is the VP of International Products at TAS Energy. And if folks want to find out more about some of the work that TAS Energy is doing in the space or potentially get in touch to source your solutions and services, how can they reach out? Uh, They can reach out to us. Just uh, The easiest way is to visit our website, www.tas.com. And you can find uh, our contact telephone numbers on that website. Fantastic. All right. Neil Smith, thanks again for joining us. Pleasure getting to chat today and source your thoughts on this. Uh, Pleasure was all mine, Daniel. I hope I uh, produced something that was a little bit uh, um, educational for those people who are going to listen to this uh, blog. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Of course. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of TAS Talks Modular. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure that you're going to our website, tas.com, or subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.